0: edition of our show History on the Brack with Katie and Allie. It would normally just be Allie and I hanging out talking about famous women in history, but sometimes we like to talk to women who are making history or writing about it.
1: We have a very special guest here with us today, Carol Hay. Welcome to the show.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: So, Carol is a professor in the philosophy department. She teaches about ethics and feminist theory and oppression studies, and she's also an author and is here with us today to talk about her book, Think Like a Feminist. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself?
2: Sure. Um, So, I've been teaching at UMass Lowell for like over a decade, and basically, I got tenure and decided I wanted to write for more than eight other academics. (laughs) So, I wrote a book for the public, general public i um, sort of taking all of the sort of hard-won lessons I've had from teaching feminist, feminism, feminist theory, feminist philosophy to undergrads over like the last 20 years. Um, so like this is like kind of a collection of like, you know, the lessons when you, when you learn when you, it's better to ca- you know, catch uh, flies with honey rather than vinegar sometimes or like what people's misconceptions are going to be, you know, certain tricks you can have to fly under people's radar, that sort of thing. So this is, yeah. I, you know, I got, I got tenure. I decided I'm, I'm going to write a much more interesting book than I had been able to before tenure. Yeah. Before that, uh, I'm a I'm a Canadian. I grew up in Saskatchewan, which is I like to say north in the middle of nowhere. Um, and <laughs> I'm a first generation college student, and so I think that part that informs like why why I wanted to write a book like this because I um, I didn't come from a, you know an academic family and. I kind of realized that you can, you can sell this stuff to like ordinary people. Ordinary people care about this stuff, right? If you just package it in a way that's accessible. So that was really my goal with this book.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it was so good. I, yeah. I enjoyed reading it so much. Thank you. All right. Well, we're gonna get into the book in a minute, but first we have a
0: special cocktail that we made for your book. Um, Allie, can you tell us what we're drinking? Yeah, so
1: obviously the cocktail is gonna be named after your book. It's called Drink Like a Feminist. But oh, okay. I, it, <laughs> <laughs> I I made it um based off of the sex on the beach, but it's in intersectionalism on the beach kind of cocktail <laughs> where there's no like layering of the ingredients. They're kind of mishmashed together. And I switched out some things. So it's an ounce of vodka instead of peach snops, It's peach whiskey, which gives a little bit of a kick. And then the cranberry juice, I subbed in lime juice for orange, orange juice, but then just put the chunks of orange right in there. <laughs> so cheers. <laughs> cheers to you. Amazing. <laughs> 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 It's very good. It's a good drink. Yeah.
0: I like the peach.
1: <laughs> peach whiskey. <laughs>
0: peach whiskey. I like
1: this. this is yeah, yeah, it is. It's very unusual, but I, I knew there had to be peach in it if I wanted it to be like a, a, a an intersectionalism on the beach. Yeah. So I, um, <laughs> I made sure to find something peach, but a little stronger. Yeah. And hopefully mis- mixing whiskey and
0: vodka will be okay by the end of this interview. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Um, So let's dive in. In the prologue of your book, you talk about an op-ed piece that you got that got some kickback. And I think you addressed this a little bit in your introduction. But really, can you set the scene for what kind of motivated you to write the book? Obviously, what's happening in our country over the last couple of years has gotten a lot of people like, I need to do something. But what what got your, like, motors ticking? Or was it just 20 years worth of curriculum?
2: Um, so in part, I guess I've, you know, I'm a lifelong feminist, and um, I, I, I started writing public philosophy after I got tenure, which looks like basically op eds and things like that. So I placed a couple pieces in the, in, in the Times, and you know, you, you, you get the kind of standard blowback. Right? Like I like to say, you know, if I'm not pissing those people off, I'm not doing my job. Yeah. So um, <laughs> and so, that, so in part, uh, I think I was really, really motivated to write this book, and I think ultimately I probably got the contract for the book um, because of the Me Too movement. Right, so I, um, you know, the, the thought was, you know, women were trending, right? This was right around um, the thought that there was that there were, there were supposed to be a lot of women uh, as, as Democratic nominees, right? So this is a while back, right? This is when I'm signing the contract for this book, and it, it, it's absurd to think that, you know, half the world's population is trendy for a minute, but, <laughs> but that really was kind of like that was the like in which I was sort of starting to write this book. And what's funny is just how much the world has changed so quickly. Since I started writing the book, and even since uh, even since I wrapped the thing, right? I mean, I wrapped it um, kind of like I guess, or I guess early 2019, right? And then um, it came out right in the middle of the pandemic, and so it was um, it was it, it's interesting to public, to, time to publish a book in the middle of the pandemic, I must say. <laughs> but um, but it's been interesting to sort of see like some things, you know, the, the things from me too that I was that I was discussing in the book. Um, uh, uh, in some ways, we as a, as a culture have moved on, right? They're, they're, I mean, those things are still active and they're, they're still going on. And I, I don't think the Me Too movement has lost steam. I think there really are, are, have been some successes there. Um, but I think, we've, I think the cultural conversation has also moved on in really important ways, right? Like we've seen the rise of, the, of the, the BLM protests, which I think is really important. And also, I just think living through the pandemic has given a lot of women um a lot of on the ground evidence of the kinds of things i'm talking about in this book right just the massively unequal distributions of domestic labor and these sorts of things so um yeah, it's it's been interesting to sort of see like the book ends up having shelf life because unfortunately sexism isn't going away anytime soon.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> Woohoo! <laughs>
2: <laughs> Yay!
0: <laughs> now I think you're interesting because you are a philosophy professor that also is a femi- you know, professor of feminism. So do you yeah. think that, like, how do you think that your philosophy degree, you know, and your expertise in that field? had an effect on this book? You know, did you find feminism through philosophy or has it just informed it?
2: That, that's a great, so, so honestly, um, this is one of those situations where um, the feminist philosophers have this idea um, um, that the, the, the bit of jargon is called standpoint epistemology, but the basic thought is that there's, there's stuff that, the, uh, that, that people at the margins of society can know better or differently or at all that people in, at the center of society can't really know at all. And I think in some ways I came to feminism and philosophy in a way I did because of that. I was a first generation college student. No no one told me I couldn't really be a feminist and a philosopher at the same time. I fell in love with them both at once. And I was sort of, I was already like pretty deep into them before someone went, actually no philosophers aren't really into feminism, especially when I started more than 20 years ago. Um, And and feminists are a little skeptical of philosophy for good reason, right? And so I just sort of like fell in love with both of them. And um, I was, you know, found and, and determined to make it work.
1: Yeah, one of the things I loved about the book is it gave a reminder to people who are well-versed in feminism of all of the different theories and backgrounds that have built in this, you know, multi-agenda, right, as you said in the book, um, movement and idea process, but then where do you think we are now? Because you explain first, second, and third wave feminism and then explain so much about today's world. Is this a fourth wave or is this, you know, what, what do you think is happening on earth at present?
2: Sure. I think we are firmly in the middle of the third wave. We have not finished learning the, the lessons of the third wave, right? So maybe just a, 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 a 30 second recap for your readers who might be a little rusty on what the waves are. Because the first wave is basically like, uh, women's suffrage, right? The, 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 looking for women to get the right to vote, will women own property, join the professions, these sorts of things happen at like the, the turn of the last century, right? Flash forward to like 1950s or so, like post-World War II, um, especially in North America, right? We see this time of great prosperity and, um Simone de Beauvoir writes the second sex, right? Where, and, and feminists for the first time started thinking about, um how feminists of the earlier generation had made a lot of progress with a lot of legal reforms right, you know, like women could now vote, they could own property, these sorts of things, but there was still a lot of sexism, you know, around, right, and so some this in the second wave realized we really started, in, we had to look at the informal stuff, right, not just the sexist laws, which you could just you know, pick off the books, but the stuff that you can't pass laws about, right, stuff like, you know, just informal interactions and expectations and, you know, gender, right, <laughs> these sorts of things, right, so that's the second wave, and then the third wave came along roughly in the 1980s or so, and basically, The third wave is interesting because in some ways it's actually just a kind of course correction to the second wave. And so the third wave is really a kind of like really historically rich understanding of the mistakes that feminists had been making for the past hundred years or so, right? Which was basically time and time again, feminists were really pretty good at centering the experiences of women who looked like them, right? Women who had the cultural capital, who had the leisure time, who had the uh, the ability to get men to listen to them, right? So these were the women that were steering the, the, the feminist ship, right? They were by and large white. Able-bodied, cisgender, heterosexual, right? Um, often very wealthy, right? And so these women tended to sort of censor their own experiences and say this is what feminism is about. And the thought here is almost like, like justice was supposed to like trickle down, right? Like if you could just make the world better for white women, it would, you know, it would somehow like all of the, like, all of the other women, like it would work itself out somehow, right? And third way of feminism is the recognition that that's just not gonna work, right? That we, if, if we actually are gonna claim to be a movement that speaks to the experiences of half the world's population, we need to actually speak to the experiences of the world's population. We have to speak to all women and not just the relatively privileged women who might actually be the ones doing the feminist theorizing and activism. Um, so given that way of carving things up, I think we are firmly in the third wave. I think that we, like time and time again, feminists um, just make mistakes in this regard, right? We It's, it's far too easy for us to think that we're, we're speaking for all women when really we're speaking for women like us. And I think that sort of like the latest skirmish in this war is the turf wars. Right, trans exclusionary radical feminists, right, saying no, no. In order to be a, a, a woman, who feminism is supposed to care about, you have to be a woman, a woman born woman, right, and that that trans women aren't real women. Um, and again, like I, I view TERFs as just making the same mistake that you know that um, Susan B Anthony was making or or, uh, uh, or Betty Friedan was making, right? It's, it's again, it's a mistake that we see time and time again throughout history, of feminists not really paying attention to women at the margins. Um, so I think that, but yeah, given that, I think we're another way still.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that is something that is really important about continuing to write feminist texts is because people do learn and grow. <laughs> and I think one of the best little things that you wrote in the book was you were talking about how, you know, we also need to address men. And you're like, you know, you gave like a bullet point. You're like, okay, you need to number one, listen, listen. <laughs> And I think that that's something we can all learn from because we need to be listening to other people right now that don't have the same experiences as us. And do you think that that is harder to speak to, to, you know, older generations of feminists who like don't want to hear it? I mean, do you get a lot of pushback from people who are like, we're on the same side?
2: (laughs) I, I, it Definitely. I mean, I, I like to say that, like, our 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 sort of collective motto. We we need to get this from Kendrick Lamar, right? It's like, it's, it's sit down, right? Be humble, right? Like, <laughs> shut up and listen, right? <laughs> um Yeah. I mean, like, the, the push pushback comes from all places. I actually, um, I think especially I see in philosophy, even like the older generation of feminists, really making a lot of progress. Really kind of recognizing that their older work wasn't as properly intersectional as it should have been. I mean, obviously, there are always there always going to be holdouts, but. um I think often mistakes tend to be just kind of like unintentional, right? Like, like often, I think what what you see now sometimes, unfortunately, is a kind of like Add and stir, like approach to intersectionality, right? Where in your head, way deep, deep down in the back of your head, you you know, the 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 sort of archetypal woman really still is a white straight cis woman, right? And all of these other things are just kind of like exotic spices that you throw in there to spice things up once in a while, right? But they're not really what it is to be a woman, right? And I think that it's really, really hard to unlearn that because that our understanding of human nature is, among other things, really racist, right? Um, And so feminists are sort of like, you know, they, they take that on board.
1: So while I was reading, one thing that really spoke to me was when you were talking about how a lot of times um there are women who are living within the patriarchy who are policing themselves. And I was like, man, why don't you just put my name on the chapter? <laughs> like, ah, <"Aw." laughs> so, It was one of those things where I'm reading and I'm like, yeah, dang it, I'm that Botox girl. I can't. <laughs> how I mean, can you speak to that a little bit and and how women in society are you know, doing things and they're like, but it makes me happy. It's my choice, but it's something that's been ingrained in us for centuries.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So I think in part, this is a really complicated thing. And I, 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 I probably could have spent the entire damn book talking about this problem. It's something that I've grappled with a lot as well as a femme, right? Because like, I, pre- I know, like, I, I present. I mean, your, re- your, readers can't see me, but Google me, folks. You'll see I, I look like a straight, uh, you know, uh, femme. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not 0% zero, zero straight, but, um, but I, I present as a really kind of conventional, you know, fifth woman. Um, when I perform femininity, that's really, really pretty conventional, right? And um, I, so for me, so let me, this is just, I'm not telling you this is how you should approach it. I'm telling you this is how I approach it as a femme, okay? Um, so as a femme, I feel like I, um, it's not enough for me to say, yeah, but I, I do this for me. I like, you know, I, I dress this way for me. This makes me feel happy. This makes me feel good in my skin. So first of all, I think that the pandemic has shown us that when we dress for ourselves, it looks like yoga pants and no bras, right? Yeah. The bra. right? The bra is dead, right? You know? <laughs> right. So um but also, I think that when we, um, when we admit, when we, um, it, we, we can't just say, well, well I, I like this, this is what makes me happy, because we have to recognize that our choices have influence on how, on what happens to other people, right? So when I perform my really, really straight, uh, like, a fairly conventional rendition of femininity, I am actually making the world worse for women who can't or won't perform femininity as successfully as I do. Right, either for reasons of racism, or transphobia, or classism, or uh, or ableism, or whatever it is. Right, there are a lot of women who are not either don't want to be, or are not able to be as successful at playing the fem, you know, the fem game as I am. And when I do it, I make it harder for them to live a good life. Right, because because my because when I like not know there's um uh, Sartre, the philosopher, he says you know in fashioning myself I fashion men. Right, and in part what that means is that when whenever we do something, we're sort of Implicitly saying this is a, this is an okay thing for people to do, right? But with every action, it also comes a kind of prescription, right? Saying that, yeah, it's, it's okay for other people to do it because I just did it. That's one way I deserve to interpret that that of thing. And I think it's relevant here, right? So when I perform femininity and say, yeah, this is what, this is what women are like. And I actually don't think this is what women should have to be like. Okay. It just so happens that, you know, this is a game that I'm willing to, that I'm willing and able to play. Um, But I I recognize how restrictive um, these beauty norms are, these 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 standards of femininity are. I recognize how much wasted time and energy goes into them, right? Um, And also, I I recognize that um, like they, yeah, they. they, they, When I do this again, as I was saying, like I make the world worse for for women who can't or won't. So, so it's it's not enough, I think, as feminists to just sort of. Say, oh, well, you know, if a woman chooses to do it, that's the end of the story. No, that's the beginning of the story, right? And again, feminists aren't necessarily here to like start, you know, like shaking their, their, their fingers in people's faces and saying, how dare you do that? Like again, that's a stereotype of feminism as being really, really judgmental. But honestly, when feminists are criticizing their stuff, their stuff, we're not criticizing how individual women choose to navigate the situations that they're thrown into. We're trying to, we're, we're trying to look at the big picture here and look at the limited option sets that women have and point those out. Right. But I think, I think a lot of uh, people who are critical of feminism hear that. And they think that we're just criticizing individual women who are choosing, but you know, like, like, this is the card, this is the camp. The metaphor I like to use is that, you know, this is the hand that you've been dealt. Right. And feminists are just trying to get you to realize that the deck has been stacked. We're not criticizing what you're doing with the hand that you've been dealt. We're just trying to get you to pay attention to the fact that it's not, it's not a fair game.
1: Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I thought your book did a great job
0: illustrating that. Yeah. And there was one part, I can't remember what it was. It was something about like, like, how sometimes like shame is okay because if you don't have the shame to be like, yeah, like I know that I'm doing this because of this society again, like if you're not looking at the cards, like you can't really fully understand what's going on. And I feel like we've been told to like never feel shame ever, but sometimes it's a really important learning tool. I mean, is that something you find, you know, difficult to kind of explain and like just exist in your own life? like? (laughs)
2: I think it's yeah so yeah so this point about shame I get this from the, probably my favorite feminist philosopher this uh, this person named Sandy Barkey and um, yes Barkey's got this idea that she says in certain circumstances women are actually entitled to their shame right and this is not a kind of like you should be ashamed of yourself kind of situation it's, it's rather it's like no yeah you are tracking reality right you you like you as a human being have these values so you have these say you're a self-identified feminist right and you have these feminist values but you also have these desires that are that are going to come into conflict with these values. And so, so shame is a natural like like you're tracking, right? It's just it's it's like it's like it'd be the same thing if you pointed at the at at the grass and said it was green, like yep, that's correct. Like you are having a correct response to the world, right? And so it's not about shaming people, but it's about sort of saying yeah, like it's true. And and then the question is, well, should you try to get rid of the desires? Should you get rid of the, the the values? That's that's sort of further down the road. But it's um. Yeah, I think it's just sort of like recognizing that, you know, it's like you're not crazy. You're not being gaslit, right? It's like that, you know, shame makes sense given the situation that you're in.
1: I liked yeah. too that you openly said, um, listen, I, I'm going to be opinionated in this book. I'm going to tell you what theories I agree with and which ones I don't. Was there anything that you held back on or that as you were writing you were like, I don't know if I can say it just that way. So I'm gonna make it a little bit more palatable. <laughs>
2: uh yeah, I think probably my vi my, my, my dear sweet editor Amy Ch- at Norton was right in making me pull back some of the vitriol that I have directed towards TERF because in, in like in real life I I I, I, I have no filter. it yeah. <laughs> it's very <laughs> hard for me to engage with TERF respectfully, um, because I think it's um it's just, it's just, it's such a horrifying thing. What, what, like, what, their version of feminism, I think, is just so, so horrifying. And so it's, it's, you know, it's, it's vilifying the women at the margins of society, women who, who need the help of feminism the most, and those people Turks are going after. I also have a dog in the fight because my partner's trans. Um, but, uh, I actually didn't meet him until after I'd written the book. So, um, but yeah, so it's been interesting because I think, um, Turks, so I, I, I published an op-ed in the Times, I guess, about a year and a half ago. Um, and the turfs came after me in a way that like no conservative, you know, like drunkhole, like, you know, ever, ever did like like the, the hate mail was like nothing I'd ever seen. Um, so this is, I don't like, I. I I despair of this in some ways because I think that the, the left is really good at cannibalizing itself, right? The right doesn't do this, right? They're very good at sort of like making coalitions across difference and like getting shit done, like for aggressive purposes, right? And I think the left, like too often, gets sucked into these purity politics, right, where we're sort of like unless you agree with me every, this can be about everything, like we we, you know, we can't you know break bread and we can't have any kind of coalitions. And I think that's to the left, to the, to the left, left detriment in that many ways. At the same time, so like sometimes I worry that I'm just playing into this by insisting on like staying firm and being like, no, turf, this is, this is the non-negotiable. Like I am not going to pretend you're a reasonable interlocutor here because you're not. Right. Um, so sometimes I worry that I'm kind of playing into that, that that's kind of tendency that we progressive folks often have. But at the end of the day, I just, I feel like history is like these people are on the wrong side of history and I, and I cannot like in good conscience pretend otherwise.
0: Yeah. And do you ever feel yeah. kind of betrayed that you're like, you're using, cause we know, you talk early in the book too about like how feminism is the other F word. And do you ever feel like, oh my gosh, like you're so good at organizing you turfs, Like, why can't you just organize, but like not be that way? <laughs> like, do you yeah. ever feel like it's just piling on to like feminism being the F word? And you're like, can you just not use that word? Because it's something that like, I know I was a, you know, gender studies major and it's something that I came to later in life. And like feminism to me is, is a very sacred thing. And I feel like, I just have a lot of anger towards people who are using it to harm, you know, marginalized groups.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I apparently I kind of feels like if if the only thing we would have to do to shut them up is to just give them the f word and we could come up with a new word, but we could actually then get all of the political capital. I'd be like, fine, you like, take the word. We're 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 going to take the like, take the actual changing the world for the better for trans people. I'd be willing to do that, right? But I think that's probably not realistic, right? So, but but again, I I don't want it to to just kind of boil down to like internet flame wars where we're fighting over who gets to call themselves a feminist, right? Because I think like ultimately the problem is much much more important than that. Yeah,
1: Yeah. I think I think so many people, especially since uh, a lot in the book you talked uh, about girl power, feminists, and how it's become pop culture, and you know you got to have the stickers of R B G and whatever else you're gonna have in your life. But beyond that. And whatever it is, can, can you, what are some practical things that you think women who identify as feminists can do to make social change?
2: I think just activism, right? I mean, like pick your, pick your favorite activism, right? Whether that's for reproductive access and rights, right? Whether that's for, um, you know, like, and, 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 and again, it's, it's going to be really, really intersectional, right? So whether, um, so if, if you're like volunteering at a, at a homeless shelter or at a women's shelter, right? Or, um, um, I think one of the things that I think I found really interesting was was watching the cultural conversation shift from the Me Too movement to the Black Lives Matter movement, as I was saying earlier, right? And so I, I found it really interesting within the sort of prog- pro- progressive activist communities that I'm part of, right, to see what that actually looked like. And so um, this past summer, right, you know, lockdown, nothing was happening. Pride was canceled everywhere, right? There was no pride. was very sad. Um, so I was in LA visiting some friends, um, very COVID careful. And um, and uh it was the, the weekend, the weekend that, that LA Pride was supposed to be. And so LA Pride had been canceled. So instead what the queer community did, did was hold a massive BLM march. And so I'm like walking down, walking down, this is the only time I've ever been in LA. I think it's probably not representative, right? Walking down Hollywood Boulevard, right, surrounded by like tens of hundreds of thousands of fabulous queers, right? At a BLM march, because there was this recognition within the queer community that this is what queer activism looks like right now. It looks like doing everything we can to support the, the Black Lives Matter movement. So for me, I think like yes. Yeah, so to be a feminist is to kind of simultaneously recognize that like your issues aren't just going to be women's issues because you can't carve this stuff up. Or that's the lesson of intersectionality, right? So you have to sort of you know pay attention to where the cultural wins are and to figure out like where's the the best place to to, um, to put your resources right now. And for the record, it was an amazing pride, right? It was completely uncorporate. It was like just everyone was you know handing out snacks and hand sanitizer, and it was just like very much like probably like like it used to be in the old days, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: definitely. Yeah. So. Obviously, you know, we're in a time where feminist texts have been around for a while, and there are a lot. So what do you think your text kind of brings to this new generation, or not new generation, but this time we're in? So what do you think that people can learn from your book that they can't really get in other books?
2: So hopefully, it's my my number one goal was to, to have it not be a slog. Like this is supposed to be beach reading. This is what I wanted. I wanted it to be like like a book club thing. Like, a, cause you know, just something light and easy, but like inform- informative, right? Like, and again, it doesn't have to, just because these are serious issues, doesn't mean they can't, they, they have to be like, you know, painful to slog through, right? So I fought tooth and nail with my editor. So, so she would let me swear. I'm like, I cannot communicate unless I can drop a few f-bombs, just a few, right? And she let me, i was very proud of this. Right. <laughs> um, but again, so for me, it's about sort of like, this is like a refresher, if say if you're, if you were a, a gender studies major back in the day, but you haven't thought about this stuff in a while, so this will be a bit of a refresher, maybe kind of jog your memory and sort of bring you up speed about what's been going on since, you know, since you graduated, right? But it's also just like, I mean, I, like, I want people to give this to their drunkle. Like, here yeah. you go, drunkle, have a read, you know, and tell me what you think, right? You know? Um, <laughs> because it really, like, I, I, like, I want it to be sort of open to pe- even people who might not necessarily identify as feminists, because I think there are a lot of misconceptions about feminism but I hope this book clears up.
1: Yeah. It did did a really nice job, I think, too, at the beginning of saying, okay, there's all these types of feminism. Here's this one. Let me paint a picture. You've seen this person on television. Here's this one. Let me paint a picture. (laughs) This person on television. Um, Was there anything that you absolutely loved writing, like your favorite part to write and or your least favorite part to write where it was like, I just cannot get through this chapter, this thought process?
2: Hmm. I think that really kind of came and went in a lot of like, like in terms of the content. Um, yeah, obviously I think every time like, you you have an idea of the book you're going to write and then the, the book you actually end up writing is of course completely different. Um, but I think I actually, it was one of those situations where like, I actually learned a ton in the writing of it. Right. Especially in this, the, like the, the, the stuff when it comes to the social construction of sex. Right. Um, I actually sort of like, and then I, I kind of knew that stuff. Like I knew, I knew it well enough to teach it to undergrads, but turns out that's not well enough to actually write a book about it. Right. <laughs> so um I, I feel like I learned a ton in the writing of it, and that always that always involves some. some I also wrote the book in a really kind of tumultuous time in my life. I was going through a divorce but I, like my life was a blender, and so it was actually really interesting as a writer because like, before this book i I was very sort of regimented in how I wrote. I was like this horrible binge writer where everything had to be completely in place before I could write, and then I would like you know like just you know, fall into a rabbit hole and write and come up and something was there right um And I had to be, you know, in my spot with everything, like at my desk and everything sort of just so. And I just couldn't do that with this book, right? I mean, I had the contract. I had to, I had to write the book. And meanwhile, I'm like couch surfing and like my life is falling apart around me. And it was really, really exciting to sort of see like, oh, I I can write. Like I wrote this book. I was, I wrote this book in Santa Fe. I wrote this book at Burning Man. I wrote this book on a beach in Italy, right? I wrote this book everywhere, right? I just like find, you know, find half an hour and write. And it's, I, it was really surprising to me to be able to do it that, that I was able to do it like that um and it was cool yeah like as as a, as a writer I think like sometimes you get these ideas of the kind of writer you are and you get stuck in that and it was kind of fun to see reality kick me out of that and learn to do, do it differently
1: yeah <laughs> my uh my absolute favorite thing so I'm a I'm a parent of two girls uh and my favorite thing you said was princess paraphernalia <laughs> I thought that phrase <laughs> nailed it I was thinking, yes <laughs> Yep. Uh, How old are your girls? Um, <laughs> uh, eight ones. and eleven. Ten. 10. Eleven. So okay. Yeah, miss, miss, just turn miss. it off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a hard question for me.
2: Anderson. <laughs> My daughter's eight. So she's mostly outside of the princess space. I had this weird thing because I was so concerned about the princess porn, right? Just to sort of like protect her from it. That like, because again, some of these stories are so aggressive. I think most of the new Disney princesses are fine. I think Disney got the memo that like, you know, new like feminist moms don't want to sell their kids. It. So they have kind of got the memo, but the old stuff was just so awful that I really kind of sheltered her from it. And what I ended up inadvertently doing, I realize is now, was sending her the message that there's something wrong with being femme. <laughs> I'm like, oh, that's totally backfired. Oh no, I did not intend that. I'm so sorry. So now she's like this eight year old, and she's like this like she's got so really kind of cute, sporty tomboy tomboy style, but like she will not wear pink, and she and she she views pink as something that's negative, right? I'm like, no, that was not the point. Shit. <laughs> oh Yeah, the best laid poem
0: What are you gonna do? <laughs> yep. Yep. It reminds me of um, one of Allie and I's favorite moments from 30 Rock where, you know, Jenna Maroney is like, you know, young girls don't even know like what a blonde, you know, beautiful princess is. There hasn't been one since like 1990 something. And you're like, wow, actually, yeah, but that's a good thing. (laughs) oh <laughs> uh, well I also wanted to know because like you said you kind of traveled while writing the book did you go anywhere specifically to kind of research or was this just kind of like I need to go somewhere fun to just change my scenery you know did your because I know a lot of people like you know the lady who wrote the book about um Emily Dickinson you know got to like stay in her house did you get to like mm. go anywhere fun just for research
2: no, unfortunately, no, I, th- th- this is all just kind of, you know, me and you know, my laptop and whatever yeah. coffee shop or table I could find. <laughs> yeah. Um, philosophy is, is, yeah, it's interesting that way, right? Because it really is like, you know, once, you, once you've got access to the books to the ideas, right? You just, it, yeah, Re- research isn't nearly as sexy it is. Like, you're not like combing through old archives or anything yeah. kind of like that. <laughs> or at least not the kind of philosophy either. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. So
1: where can people find you? Where can they find the book? It is an audio book. I mean, everybody listening loves audio format. So mm-hmm. there is an audio book, everyone.
2: <laughs> so where can they there's find an audio Yeah. So there's an audiobook. There's a Kindle or there's an ebook. There's a hardcover. Um, they're available wherever books are sold, right? You could probably want to avoid the evil Amazon empire, but any of your local bookstores or anything like that it's available. The soft cover is coming out. I think we're scheduled for about a year from now. The soft cover will come out. So we're still on hardback. Um, And I can be found on Twitter at uh, Dr. Carol Hay. And Instagram, I think is, I think it's Carol Hay feminist philosopher. I what my handle is. And my website is just carolhay.org.
0: All right, perfect. Well, mm-hmm. thank you for coming on. It was so great. It was It was such a great read as like, someone who was for four years um, entrenched in <laughs> every feminist text there was. Because, <laughs> you know, to be able to just kind of dive back in and get this great, it felt like a refresher course because, you know, I feel like one of the problems I had was when I got out, I was like, all right, I'm not reading anything more. <laughs>
1: I'm the best, best feminist ever. I Done. <laughs> Feminism.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. Done. <laughs> exactly. Achievement unlocked. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it was great being able to kind of like dive back in, and also like read positive new texts, modern texts on feminist theory. It was just absolutely thrilling, and we want everyone to go out and read this again, whether it's a gift for your drunkle or just for you to <laughs> yeah. read on the beach. It's a
2: great read. Yeah, I think it would be a great book club thing. Honestly, I think it would be fun to do in a book club. No. And
1: it'll be nice because when you read it, you feel kind of smart. You're like, oh, oh gosh. The, the feminist mystique. I, I know what that is. <laughs> yeah. Mary Wollstonecraft. Yeah, made, yeah, yeah, yeah. What yeah. Do you read? <laughs> uh, a philosophy book. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly.
2: That's great. Thank you uh, well, so much.
1: We hope you have a wonderful afternoon. And we can't yeah. wait to keep in touch with you with your next book. Yeah.
2: Thank you so much. And I can't, I can't wait to make, make one of these drinks. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely starting to kick in. Oh my gosh! Yeah. (laughs)